0: Listener production.
1: Okay. I think I'm starting to feel a bit warmed up and ready. Okay. Are you? I'm ready. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. This is what it was like when Rosie and I first started doing this and I just thought it was so hilarious to have the two of us on microphones doing a professional podcast like grown-ups and I just Mm -hmm. couldn't stop giggling. Okay. Good. <laughs> Hello. Sorry for the delay, everyone. We are back, and my COVID brain fog is gone. Welcome to another episode of Just The Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which ordinarily Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to discuss at a dinner party. And of course, you all know Rosie's on a little break at the moment, and so each week we're bringing in an extra special guest host. And this week, this just feels so right. We've got Rosie Waterland's number one fan and the woman who named her son after a mid-range brand of wine, my mother, the widow Stanley. Welcome to Just the Gist.
0: Thank you, Jacob.
1: <laughs> so thrilled to have you here, but I'm certain that we're just going to giggle the whole way through. But um, cheers. Oh, cheers. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. So, Mama, I picked this story especially for you because we have a bit of a personal family connection to it. It's the story of a global cult that's best known for the time it moved its headquarters from India to America in the 1980s. They built an entire city from scratch. Then they took control of another city nearby. Then they tried to take control of the entire county, With a vision to then take control of the entire state of Oregon Before the end of the decade And to get whatever they wanted The members of this cult Who of course preached peace and harmony And love and unity Proved that they were willing to threaten, poison and murder Anyone who got in their way This is just the gist of Bhagwan Rajneesh's sannyasins Who tried to take America now, let me explain the personal connection that we have to this. At Christmas a few years ago, your brother-in-law was talking to my cousin Haley in quite a lot of detail about something. I couldn't tell what he was talking about, but I could see he'd been talking long enough that Haley was struggling a bit. I could see she needed someone to step in and save her. The whites of her eyes were getting bigger and the smile on her face was getting more and more forced. So I launched a rescue mission dropped into their conversation, and it turned out that he was talking to her about the powerful benefits of dynamic meditation. And I was like, oh, you mean walking meditation? I love walking meditations. I've got this fantastic app. And he cut me off straight away and was like, no, 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 no. It's far more intense than that. I can only remember that he used this word I'd never heard before, sannyasins. And I Googled it right then and there in the moment and just sort of skimmed the first few sentences of Wikipedia didn't absorb any of it, but it had obviously something to do with Eastern spirituality. And then Haley and I thankfully found a reason to go inside. We wrapped it up there. I did not think about that conversation at all until 2018 when I watched an eight-hour documentary series on Netflix called Wild Wild Country. I binged the whole thing in one day. It was so outrageous I couldn't tear myself away from it. It told the story of this unhinged sex cult that was absolutely ruthless when it came to getting whatever they wanted. And when I got to the end of it, I was like, there was a word they kept using and I couldn't figure out what it was, but it was sannyas or sundas, something or other. So I Googled it. It turned out it was exactly the same word that I'd Googled that Christmas a couple of years before. And that's when it clicked that my uncle, your brother-in-law, had been in that very cult that I'd just spent the entire day watching a batshit bananas documentary all about. We'd heard talk of him having lived in a commune up in Byron Shire for years before he married your sister, but we'd never really asked him questions about that time in his life, right? We just sort of accepted that he'd lived with a group of people. Never once thought that there might have been some sort of special religious affiliation with the folks he was living with. Um, And I never would have guessed that he would be the type of person that would end up in a group like this, the sannyasins. They're most famous for free love and open marriages and using tantric orgies as a type of psychological (laughs) therapy. Um, They're famous for their dynamic meditation practices, which we'll get into it. They involved quite a bit of violence and sex. And their biggest claim to fame is committing one of the biggest bioterrorism attacks ever in the United States of America in an effort to take control of the government. And I should make it very clear here, my uncle, your brother-in-law, as far as we know, we had nof- he had nothing to do with the bioterrorism or the murder plots or even the tantric sex orgies. But I just want you to keep in mind, Mama, as we're talking through the details of this, that that kind, sweet man was swept up and was a part of this group for I don't know how many years. Um, and then didn't he go back to them? after they divorced?
0: Oh, I think so. Mm. Uh, maybe not to the cult, but um, re-establish some friendship, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but certainly he was a really conservative person. You would not think of him being in any type of cult, let alone something like that.
1: Mm-mm-mm-mm.
0: I think it was just more, um, a, I thought of it as
1: like a social group
0: mm-hmm. that believed in a bit of communal living and sharing the duties. And-
1: oh, you are in <laughs> for a rude awakening <laughs> as you find out more about these people. Um So, okay, here is the story of the Rajneeshis and how they very nearly ignited a civil war in America. So the leader of the cult was an Indian man who'd given himself the name Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And Bhagwan means blessed Lord or God in Sanskrit, which says a lot about how he thought of himself. And his followers did absolutely worship him like a deity. Tiny bit of background about him. He was born in the early 1930s in India and according to his family, he was one of those kids who was just a natural born shit stirrer. He pushed every boundary he came across, found a way to challenge all authority figures from a very young age and always had a knack for influencing people. The kid had charisma and he went on to uni to study philosophy and he was such an argumentative contrarian pain in the butt in his classes that the professors all asked him to just not attend anymore because he was always so disruptive. And they told him he could just take the tests at the end of the term and they'd give him his degree if he passed. Using that sort of system for himself, he ended up going all the way on to become a professor of philosophy. But then he couldn't hold down a job because he got fired from all the different universities that he went to work at because he would give such controversial lectures about sex and politics and why he believed all religions are bullshit. So he started traveling all around India, giving independent lectures all throughout the 60s. And the philosophy he was preaching in those lectures was very pro-capitalism, pro-consumerism. He was totally anti-chastity. He encouraged people to have as much sex as they liked with as many people as they wanted without shame. He was staunchly anti-marriage, didn't believe in monogamy at all. So pretty much the exact opposite of what most religions, particularly the most conservative ones, preach. And this was appalling to the majority of people in India, particularly all the devout Hindus in the cities he was going to visit. But for the audience members, his message did resonate with. It was really refreshing to hear a philosopher give them permission to be as greedy as they wanted and just have heaps of sexy sex all day long. So his lectures in cities all across the country were pretty well attended and he started to develop a bit of a following. And he started publishing books in multiple language. And once the 70s rolled around, he decided to induct a group of disciples who would help him set up an ashram in Pune, which is now known as Pune, I think, one of the biggest cities in India. And that ashram became like a mecca for people from all around the world who were curious to know more about Bhagwan and his teachings, which were mostly white, young, middle-class hippies, very much the Byron Bay dream catcher and drum circle type crowd. These people were quite well educated and they had money and they were seeking enlightenment and they were willing to pay top dollar for it by making large donations to Bhagwan. Every year throughout the 1970s, the Rajneesh movement grew exponentially. The ashram was always full and typically there would be 10 times more white people there than there would be Indians because he'd sort of cornered the market on hippies from the Western Hemisphere because he was one of the very few gurus who spoke English. And although he said he was not a religious leader and he didn't believe in religion, he was very content to be worshipped like a god and his followers obeyed every command that he handed down. They wore only colours of the sunrise, so yellows and oranges, pinks, reds, because that symbolised enlightenment. And they all wore this wooden beaded prayer necklace with a picture of Bhagwan on a medallion in the middle. Um, you might have seen these people on TV back in the 70s I, reme- I
0: remember seeing people around.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, probably later than the 70s, but
1: and were at some people, stage. were they already calling them the orange people yep. by that stage? Mm-hmm. And were people fearful of them?
0: No, no. You know, there were the Hare Krishnas and there were the orange people. I wouldn't have known what was the difference.
1: So you thought, just thought of them as peaceful?
0: Yeah. I'm I probably. had very little to do with them. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there were many in Sydney. I don't really remember.
1: Is that where you were at the time? Mm. I guess he would have been. Oh, yeah. 70s, yeah. Yeah. The name sannyasin, the word that I'd Googled that Christmas and after watching the documentary, it's a term Bhagwan appropriated from Hinduism that he gave to his followers. And it basically means someone who's surrendered everything in the pursuit of spiritual awakening and is willing to be totally obedient to their leader under all circumstances for the rest of eternity. And the delicious irony of that is that he was preaching as part of his belief system that all of his sannyasins were more evolved than other people because they were such free thinkers and such individualists, even though they dedicated their lives to doing exactly what this one man told them to do. Over the years, more and more sannyasin meditation centers started popping up all across the world, in Europe, in America, here in Australia – particularly popular in Germany, which is relevant to your brother-in-law because that's probably where he first encountered the sannyasins. Um, and then that may be why he ended up with them once he was out here in Malumbimbi. Those meditation centres essentially became recruitment centres and fundraising outposts with all the donations, of course, making their way up to Bhagwan, who was getting very wealthy very quickly. And around the world, people started to get quite concerned about the growing numbers of orange people congregating in their communities. So I'm a little surprised that you your recollection is that people weren't too worried about them. Most of the reporting that I've read has lots of sort of hand-wringing and pearl-clutching about how concerned people were to have these groups establishing themselves in their communities and then growing. And also there was a lot of concerned people who were contacting the media because they'd lost family members and loved ones to the cult because they'd given up their lives and handed everything over to the Rajneeshis. And, you know, whether they'd moved overseas or moved interstate, they'd left everyone behind. There were even reports of people leaving their kids behind because they'd become so dedicated to the cult. Um, And then rumours started to get out about the things that happened inside the meditation centers like the dynamic meditation sessions and it's probably time that I describe that to you so this is what Hayley was copying in you for all about that christmas I've certainly never heard of it so the protocol for dynamic meditation has a few steps involved firstly everyone in the group jumps and wriggles and thrusts around vigorously for about 10 minutes breathing very heavily through the nose intentionally hyperventilating. And then once they're all very dizzy and a bit frantic, they go through a process of catharsis where they're told to let go of all inhibitions in any way they feel is right and necessary. And that could mean screaming your lungs out or beating the shit out of the other people in the room or having wild, crazy group sex or all of the above. Then once that is complete after another 10 minutes or so, then they all hyperventilate again. Then they sit in silence for about 10 minutes and then to wrap it all up, they have a nude dance party where they all hug and kiss and celebrate. (laughs) Could you ever have guessed that that was the sort of thing your brother-in-law no, was no. into?
0: I have seen him dance, mm. but not like that. <laughs> and, you know, he was a jazz fan. When the Beatles were in Hamburg, he was at the jazz club across the road. He was that kind of guy, cool mm. in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm, 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 mm. Yeah, well, eye-opening, isn't it? <laughs> this is the sort of practice that not only was he into, but um, aren't you glad I rescued Haley from that conversation? <laughs> So a lot of people, when these reports started leaking, began to really assertively speak out against the Rajneeshis, particularly in India. There were more and more protests happening outside the Rajneesh ashram. And in response to that, Bhagwan, who, you know, boundary pusher, started flaunting his wealth as a way of antagonising all of his haters. He started driving around the city in Rolls Royces and flashing Rolex watches, and then more extreme reports started leaking out to the media about him forcing men to watch their wives have group sex with other men as a way of them surrendering their wives, or Bhagwan himself giving pretty young women special therapy sessions that involve mutual masturbation in his bed. All very unseemly stuff, and of course, this is why one Rajneesh was branded as the sex guru and the rajneeshis were branded as the sex cult. And they became a subject of fascination all around the world for that reason. As you can probably imagine, because there was so much bonking going on at the ashram, it, with multiple partners and with no protection, STDs were absolutely rife. Ooh. And just imagine how badly that place would have stank because this is the tropics we're talking about and they're spending their days jumping around, sweating and coming all over each other. It would have been, oh, oh, absolutely... My I'm your mother, Jake. Please. <laughs> <laughs> this is really dark and shocking. There were also lots of Well, I was going to ask
0: about that. Where were all these children?
1: Yeah, so that's when the reports started to come out that Bhagwan was telling the women who got pregnant that they needed to have abortions. Mm. Not just have abortions. He was telling them they needed, as the ultimate surrender to him and display of dedication, he needed them to become sterilised. And so hundreds of women followed those orders believing that It was a way of proving their devotion and it was a way for them to gain enlightenment for themselves, which is really distressing Mm. Um, and so incredibly manipulative. But he didn't want these women having babies that was going to take their attention away from worshipping him. So foul. Public pressure started to grow and politicians in India really were getting the message that they could not just continue to permit the sannyasins to live by their own set of rules without any form of scrutiny. So they started investigating. They found that laws were definitely being broken. Firstly, sannyasins from around the world were being encouraged to migrate to India illegally. And oopsie, the Rajneesh ashram wasn't paying any tax. And it was the late 70s by this point. Already the sannyasins had been hunting for a location to set up a huge commune that could be home for more than 10,000 sannyasins. That was the vision. The Indian government was making that very difficult for them, though they really wanted to make sure there were lots of roadblocks in the way to prevent their expansion while they were also preparing to prosecute for all the illegal activity. Bhagwan found their interference deeply annoying, and he blamed the woman who'd been his secretary and his disciple and basically his general for over a decade, one of the original sannyasins named Lakshmi. He demoted Lakshmi and replaced her with the woman who would go on to have more of an impact on the Rajneshi movement than any other individual. She is quite famous. If you've seen the documentary Wild Wild Country, you know I'm about to introduce Ma Anand Sheila, who was a... Young and ferociously ambitious woman whose father had introduced her to Bhagwan when she was a teenager. And according to her, the moment she first laid eyes on Bhagwan, she decided to devote herself to him for the rest of her life. When she was promoted to the top position in the ashram, she told Bhagwan he needed to just get real and face the reality he was never going to be able to build the commune of his dreams in India the government was just going to make it too difficult for him, she had a much better solution in mind for the commune. So she'd lived and studied in America for a few years and she recommended they relocate there to the land of the free if they really wanted to be able to exercise true religious freedom. He told her if she really believed she could make it happen, she'd have his full support and if she could pull it off, then he'd make her his right-hand woman his spokesperson, and the president of his companies. So she got the ball rolling, started arranging visas and plane tickets and accommodation, all in complete secrecy because they couldn't have the government find out what they were scheming and stepping in to stop them. And then when Bhagwan and Sheila and their closest allies suddenly left the ashram in their Rolls Royces without any announcement about where they were going or why, it caused quite a bit of shock and confusion and consternation amongst all the Sannyasins who'd been left behind with no clue of what was going on or what they were expected to do. It was all very odd because for the past year or so Bagwan had been completely silent. Whenever he appeared in public, he did not utter a single word in any of the group sessions he was leading. He would just sit in silence. <laughs>
0: He's leading a session without speaking.
1: Correct. Yep. <laughs> and his followers believed that just laying their eyeballs on him was enough for was them enough. to get spiritual mm-hmm. fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Seemed like kind of a gimmick, but... Sat a little bit weird, particularly with the media who were reporting on the Rajneeshis. Now he'd done this smoke bomb job and just ghosted all his faithful minions and people didn't know what to think. Then, a few days later, when Bhagwan and his entourage safely made it to the United States, Sheila announced to all the sannyasins that Bhagwan had told them all to go home to their old lives just temporarily and wait until the new commune, this Rajneeshi paradise that was going to be home to 10,000 of them at least, wait until that was ready for them. They just needed to patiently maintain their faith, but that day would come soon. So the ashram was emptied out, all its contents were sold off, and the sannyasins scattered around the globe to just wait for further orders to come down the line. While news outlets all around the world were reporting on this very sort of Odd and unexpected twist. No one knew where Bhagwan had gone, and they wanted to know if he was in hiding somewhere. Was this to do with the legal troubles he was facing in India? Then the news broke that Sheila and Bhagwan and their crew of disciples had moved into a mansion that sort of looks like a medieval castle in New Jersey, of all places. Yes. Uh, Sheila had gone to university there and so it was the place she was most familiar with in the US and she bought the grandest building she could find which was this quirky replica castle um, which looks so totally out of place in Jersey and there were these reports that Bhagwan was seen driving around in his Rolls Royce and getting speeding tickets because he was a bit of a speed fiend What the media didn't know, though, was that they were just using New Jersey as a temporary base while Sheila was out scouting for locations for the commune. After a few weeks of her hunting all across the country, she found a spot she thought was suitable. In retrospect, she would surely have to agree she had chosen a terrible location, but at the time she was really certain she'd picked the perfect piece of land for what was to become the city of Rajneeshpuram. She offered $5.9 million on the spot to buy this abandoned ranch in the middle of Oregon called Big Muddy Ranch. And it's kind of an apt name because it was very muddy and (laughs) it definitely was big, 260 square kilometres, so almost exactly the size of Newcastle here in Mm -hmm. New South Wales, 64,000 acres if that makes more sense to you or you've been to New York. You could fit about five Manhattan islands mm-hmm. on Big Muddy Ranch. It was very vast and it was very remote and it was about to become the home for the world's you leading just... community of rajneeshis yes. Now, why was it such a difficult spot and such a terrible choice for a sex commune? Geography-wise, it was pretty rough terrain, just a mishmash of hills and rocks and the weather there. Not really designed
0: for um, Rolls Royces.
1: Not at all, no. They were going to have to do a lot if they wanted to make it possible for him to get in and out with his Rollies. Um, Culturally, it was and is a very conservative area, definitely not fit for a group who enjoyed partaking in tantric group sex rituals and dropping LSD. And legally, of the 50 states in America, Oregon was probably the most challenging one they could have chosen because they have the tightest zoning restrictions and laws about how land can be used. Sheila hadn't been able to take the time to do any research to get to know any of this because Bugwan was being so impatient about getting the commune up and running. And so once Sheila had made the decision that the sannyasins would set up their community in big muddy ranch. There was no turning back no matter what. Immediately, sannyasins were summoned from all around the world to come to Oregon and start building their new home, this new utopia in the wild west of America. They were told to sell everything they owned, bring all that money to Oregon because they were going to need a whole lot of capital. And because the network of sannyasins had attracted these well-educated professional people over the last few decades, they were able to call on their network to gather engineers and architects and agronomists, farmers, people from all different fields who were going to be able to bring their expertise and start turning this remote ranch into a proper city all under the guise of just establishing a little farm. When Sheila bought the ranch, she told them she was a wealthy widow who just wanted to set up a farm and start a new life for herself. But within a few weeks, they'd figured out her connection to the sex guru and his rather notorious sex cult. And the locals were not pleased it made the citizens of the towns nearby very nervous to watch these groups of hippies wearing red and orange (laughs) and yellow streaming out to Big Muddy Ranch in truckloads. And for the first few months, Sheila and the other senior members of the sannyasins who were addressing the media and talking to the nervous members of the local community continued to maintain the narrative. They were simply setting up a farm, nothing more. They promised they'd operate within all the state and county guidelines and restrictions on land use and zoning. They reassured the public that all those hundreds and hundreds of workers who were relocating to the farm, they were only there temporarily (laughs) for the project and that all the structures they were building on the ranch were there purely because they were necessary to be able to run the farm. But it was obvious to everyone from the beginning that was a very blatant lie and obviously the Sanyasins had much grander plans than just a farm. There were hundreds of them there on the ranch working around the clock, 14 to 16 hour shifts every single day. And while they did set up areas of farmland, the infrastructure they were erecting was more than enough to support an entire city with thousands of permanent residents. They built a dam. They built a very elaborate plumbing and sewer system. They built their own power plant. They had a whole network of roads that Bhagwan could speed around in his Rolls Royce. They even built themselves an airport. So all the locals were like, we are not as stupid as you clearly think we are. You are building a city and you're planning to bring thousands and thousands of people from around the world to come and live here. But Sheila just kept maintaining the pretense it was only a farm, it was only a farm, up until August of 1981. That's when Bhagwan moved to the ranch and the jig was up a couple of weeks after that when finally the Rajneeshis sort of came clean and revealed their plans, to the surprise of no one, that they were going to have the ranch legally incorporated as a city called Rajneeshpuram, the city of Rajneesh.
0: This is much bigger than I any recollection of. And we are just United. getting started, yeah. Mama. I thought mm-hmm. a commune that a helicopter could land in. I had no idea about an airstrip or.
1: They had their like own airline. That. Oh, God. Rajneesh Air or yeah. Air Rajneesh, yeah. one of the two. Hold on, we <laughs> are just getting started and I'm going to need a beer. So when they made this announcement, that was basically treated like a declaration of war and it sparked. Conflict between the Rajneeshis and the native Oregonians that would rage in the courts and on the streets and just keep escalating for the next few years to the point that murders were plotted, hundreds of people were poisoned, a building was bombed, an army was formed. And this was all, keep in mind, in the name of building this peaceful paradise that Bhagwan had instructed his followers (laughs) to build for him. And that we had a family member who was involved in this organisation.
0: I think you need to leave him out of this now.
1: (sighs) I can't get it out of my brain. Um, Okay, so the first chapter in the story of this war between the Rajneeshis and the people of Oregon was the takeover of the nearest town, a sleepy little ghost village called Antelope that only had like 40-something residents, pretty much all of them were retired conservative white Christians who did not much like the idea of the sex guru bringing his flock of free love zombies who smelled like incense and yeast right into their backyard. And they made this, their discomfort very well known in the media. And then What happened to them was covered a lot by news outlets around the world and presented as every small town's worst nightmare because the Rajneeshis started buying up all the commercial and residential property they could get their hands on and they used a combination of coercion and intimidation to get rid of as many of the original residents as possible until there were more than double the amount of sannyasins than... Antelopeans living in Antelope and they'd effectively taken control of the city. To try to prevent them from running the city, the mayor went to the extreme length of trying to have the city of Antelope disincorporated entirely so there would just be no city for the Rajneeshis to control. But it was too late. The orange people already had more than enough power to be able to block that from happening. And... This became a global news story, even though it's you know a really small town. You'd think it only hit the local news, but it was reported all around the world. Firstly, because this was happening just a few years after the Jonestown massacre had happened, so there were a lot of comparisons being made between Jim Jones and the People's Temple versus Bhagwan and the Rajneeshis. Secondly, because there were Sanyas and meditation centres all over the world on every continent pretty much, there was a lot of angst that this could happen to us as well. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. there was that fear people already had that the media was tapping into. And the third reason was because Sheila gave incredible sound bites on TV. She, well, she was, was horrible. You she remember was, her. She
0: was so confident that mm-hmm. and so irritating. Like you could imagine her putting everybody offside.
1: Mm-hmm. And that was part of her plan. And that's what she'd been instructed to do from a young age by Bhagwan. Be Mm -hmm. as much of an antagonist as you can possibly be. And, you know, the more arrogant you are, the more people are going to respect you, was Mm -hmm. his philosophy. So that's why she was acting like such a troll. And Mm -hmm. she'd do things like call people names and she'd flip the bird to the camera at every opportunity And she'd proudly brag about how many Rolls Royces Bhagwan had. And, of course, this would come a few years later when she was on 60 Minutes Australia. Her catchphrase became tough Tough titties. titties. Yeah, (laughs) when she was asked what her response would be to anyone who said they didn't want to have the sannyasins in their city. So all of that came together to mean that there was lots of media coverage. Ironically, though, that media coverage worked to benefit the Rajneeshis in terms of recruitment because it was like free publicity for them. All these people around the world were hearing about this group that encouraged its members to have lots and lots of sex and be as greedy as they wanted to be. And, you know, teenagers were seeing old ladies from Antelope getting on the news and winching about how (gasps) they could hear people (laughs) screwing like baboons all night long. And (gasps) there were nude women sunbaking in the park. And so kids all around the world were like, I am so in. And the movement kept growing and growing. And then that just kept fanning the flames of panic more and more, which, again, is why I'm surprised that you don't remember them as having been treated as a menace. No. Not no, at all?
0: No, maybe I just wasn't paying attention.
1: You don't remember the panic, but there was panic and the government was compelled to put up as much of a fight as they could. So the state tried to fight in the courts against the ranch being made into a city, while at the same time the Immigration Department tried to make a move to get rid of Bagwan himself. He was in the country on a tourist visa, which he was asking to have extended for medical reasons. That didn't work, so instead he arranged to meet with the immigration department to explain that he was a religious leader who deserved a special residential visa so he could be there to teach and guide his people. There'd be nothing without him. And I have to describe this. The day of his meeting at the immigration office, his sannyasins arrived before him to literally roll out a red carpet at Mm. the entry to the building and they laid down roses on either side of the carpet. Then they stood in lines on the side of the carpet mm-hmm. with their hands in prayer position so that he could enter the building with the dignity they deeply <laughs> believed he deserved. Yeah, sounds familiar. And then once he was inside, the immigration officials who were reviewing the request were like, we really don't see how you could be a religious teacher given that you haven't spoken in public for years because he was still maintaining that gimmick. And also, aren't you staunchly (laughs) anti-religion? Isn't that your whole thing, that you Mm -hmm. think organised religion is a scam? And so... He was denied the visa, and he assigned a team of his Rajneeshis to take on the project of gathering evidence that he did teach the Sannyasins. He just used a highly evolved combination of written words as well as energetic communication <laughs> fields when he was sitting in silence in front of them. And they were also put to work registering Rajnishism as an officially recognized religion, which meant... They had to write the Rajneesh Bible complete with Rajneesh Ten Commandments and their own unique apocalyptic doomsday predictions that the end was nigh and members of the cult were just assigned roles as ministers or priests um, without even volunteering for those positions they needed to create the necessary hierarchy of a traditionally recognised church, knowing full well, most of them, that this was all a piss take purely to manipulate the government and get what they wanted, which was citizenship for Rajneesh. That all backfired, though, because it gave the state attorney more grounds to have Rajneesh Puram disincorporated because under the US Constitution, church and state have to remain separate, and the city of Rajnishpuram was totally inextricable from this new religion of Rajneeshism. And so that seemed like it was going to be the downfall of puram It was going to be disincorporated and then demolished. The Rajneeshis claimed, as they often did, that they were being unfairly persecuted because of their religion, and right while that conflict was going on, They were targeted by a terrorist from a Muslim extremist group who set off bombs at the hotel the Rajneeshis owned in Portland. And they claimed, well, there you go. That's just further evidence that we are under attack because of our beliefs. And that's when they declared they were willing to defend themselves by whatever means necessary. And that's when they formed their army that they called the Peace Force to defend their city. They bought hundreds and hundreds of very high-powered guns, like AK-47s, that they carried around with them wherever they went. And they invited news crews to come and watch the Peace Force while they were training for combat. And Sheila said again and again when she was talking to the media that for any one Rajneeshie that was harmed, she would arrange to have 15 non non-Rajnishis killed in revenge. So that put the National Guard on very high alert and they set up a task force to monitor Rajneesh Puram and be ready to swoop in at a moment's notice if and when trouble broke out. And for everyone who was watching at home, it was like, oh, shit, they're not just a bit annoying and weird and creepy. These people could legitimately be very dangerous. <laughs> and so various official forces really ramped up their efforts to try to get rid of Rajneesh Puram and Rajneesh himself, ...while Sheila ramped up the Rajneeshi's defence strategies. Now, we're going to talk about the 1984 county election... ...which is one of the most famous events in this whole story. As 1984 approached, Sheila decided that the most effective way... ...to protect their city from being disincorporated and demolished... ...was to win seats in the Wasco County Circuit Court... ...effectively their council... And if she could get control of a couple of positions there, then they would have control of all the building and development permits across a huge chunk of their state, including, of course, their own. She nominated two Rajneeshi candidates to be elected, but she knew there weren't enough eligible voters in Rajnishpuram to guarantee they'd be able to win those seats. There were about 7,000 sannyasins living on the commune by this stage, But less than half of them were eligible to vote, either because of age or citizenship. So she got creative, still operating within the voting rules. To be eligible to vote in the election, a person just needed to be a US citizen over 18 years old who had lived somewhere in Wasco County for the previous 20 days. And Sheila put out the word to all sannyasins across the US that they were invited to come and stay at Rajneesh Puram for the three weeks mm-hmm. leading up to the election and they'd get a generous discount on their accommodation <laughs> if they were of legal voting age. Of course they had to pay. Sheila never missed an opportunity to fundraise mm-hmm. and the implication was obviously we want you to help swing the vote here. She didn't get very many nibbles from that special offer, so she came up with another scheme. She sent teams of Rajneshis out to all the major cities across the country with empty buses and instructed them to bring back as many homeless people as they oh, could no. possibly fit in their vehicles. Mm-hmm. These special recruitment teams would approach people who were living on the streets and offer them a free ride to Oregon where they'd be given a new start. Free accommodation and food and clothing and education. dream
0: come true. Mm,
1: Maybe just a tiny little bit of brainwashing (laughs) here or there. Better than living on the street. Yeah. They'd even get two beers a day. So it seemed like a pretty good deal. And if they didn't like their new life, they could have a free ticket back to their home city on a return bus. The only condition was, of course, they needed to be over 18 years old and a US citizen eligible to vote. So under this scheme thousands of people mostly men were taken to Rajnishpuram from all different cities all across the USA And Sheila told the press this was a humanitarian initiative that Bhagwan had come up with. They called it the Share a Home Project and said it was just about giving back to the community and giving people a second chance at life when the rest of America had given up on them.
0: They had enough accommodation there for all those people.
1: They were able to cram them into tents Mm -hmm. mostly. Um, Yeah, and then you can imagine how many people they would have in like a small A-frame one-bedroom building.
0: And then trying to feed them all.
1: Yeah, right tricky. But they weren't planning to keep them there forever. Everyone in possession of a head could see what was really going on here. Sheila was just brazenly bringing in voters to try to get her candidates elected. They'd even set up voter registration booths in Rajneeshpuram. And as more and more new residents were busting into the commune day after day, people across the state started to get seriously worried that the Rajneeshis getting some real political power was a possible reality thanks to this tricky little manoeuvre. But then the locals heaved a huge sigh of relief when the county office announced they'd decided not to accept any of the new enrolments from these new citizens who just moved to Oregon. That was a decision that the Rajneeshis obviously tried very hard to protest, but it wasn't one they could change, and now, uh uh-oh, They had all these extra mouths, they (laughs) promised they were going to feed and this is where things started to get really, really screwed up. So already about 60% of the homeless people who'd come to Puram didn't find it to be to their liking and they took up the offer of the free return bus ticket to go home. Those return tickets were an unexpected drain on Mm. the city's funds. That cost wasn't in the budget. They didn't expect that people were going to want to leave the Oasis so soon. So Sheila intervened and announced there would be no more free rides home. Anyone who wanted to leave would just be taken to a nearby city somewhere in Oregon and they could just figure it out for themselves from there which was a big worry for all the cities and yeah. towns nearby. We're talking about, you know, small towns of only a few hundred people suddenly having busloads of hundreds of people yeah. who were unhoused living on their streets. So a state official arranged for some wealthy business people to fund a covert operation that they wanted to keep secret from the Rajneeshis, where they would collect all the homeless people that were being dumped by Sheila and her team and discreetly get them back to where they wanted to go in the country. And then the people who were running that operation... Noticed that the folks they were helping to transport started to seem like they were really stoned. And it turned out the Rajneeshis had started spiking those two free beers oh. a day that they were giving to their newest recruits with a combination of sedatives and antipsychotics, obviously without their knowledge. And their justification for doing that was that one of these men had experienced an episode of psychosis and tried attacking a few of the Rajneeshis, including Sheila. And so in response, they started drugging all of them before they would then remove them from Rajneeshpuram. And while that little conspiracy was being uncovered, Sheila announced that the entire Share A Home initiative was over and now all of the new recruits had to just leave the commune immediately. A lot of people were really pissed off, especially the ones who decided that they actually wanted to stay in Rajneeshpuram. They felt that they'd found a home and they'd embrace, embraced Rajneeshism. Sheila didn't give a shit about who was angry or why. She just now had to focus on her plan B to win this county election because, in her mind, the stakes had never been higher. She absolutely had to win. And she figured if she couldn't increase the number of pro rajni voters, she'd find a way to decrease the number of anti (laughs) rajneesh voters. Now, a while ago, she'd instructed one of her closest allies to start figuring out how to cultivate salmonella which is oh a bacteria that famously makes people very, very, very sick if it's ingested. And the plan was to use the salmonella, uh, salmonella cultures to give people the shits, in Sheila's words. Whenever Sheila wanted someone to be taken out of action, she wanted to be able to just give them the shits and have them bedridden for a few days. Like, for example, when someone from the county was coming to expect the facilities at Rajneeshpuram, they could be given a drink of water that was spiked with salmonella and then have to quickly rush home to bed, possibly to hospital and be incapacitated for a little while. Or, in this case, if a large group of registered voters could be incapacitated on the day of an election, that might then sway the outcome in her favour. So, Sheila's team started quickly experimenting with ways they could distribute the salmonella to large group of people all at once. And they tried out wiping it on door handles in public buildings and then pouring it into jugs of coffee creamer in diners and spraying it on fresh veggies in supermarkets. And sometimes they even tried rubbing it on their own palms and fingertips before they went to um, meetings with people where they'd be shaking hands. And while they were still in the experimentation phase trying to figure out what they would do on Election Day, they managed to cause what was reported to be the biggest and first bioterror attack in US history. But I think (laughs) that really overlooks the fact that the Pilgrims intentionally gave Mm. the Native Americans blankets that were covered in smallpox. So Mm. I think we can safely call that the first bioterrorism attack that happened in that country. Let's just say this was the first and biggest one that happened in that century. Over the course of a few days, Sheila's team visited restaurants all around the county and poured salmonella into the creamy pasta salad Mm. type dishes that were always the most popular dishes at 80s salad bars. Mm, They were
0: so fashionable then.
1: Mm, Yum. 751 people caught very acute gastro Mm. in the space of a couple of days. 45 of those people ended up in the emergency room, mm. one of whom was a heavily pregnant woman who very nearly lost her baby. Mm. Understandably, the whole state went into panic mode. It was obvious they were under attack from someone and the Rajneeshis were obvious <laughs> culprits to be suspected. But
0: they're just a loving cult.
1: Yeah, and also you couldn't prove anything and Sheila just went into her usual stance of being indignant and outraged at the mere suggestion that they might be in any way involved in this. Sheila's team, meanwhile, they were quietly pleased at the result, but they knew incapacitating 751 people wasn't going to be enough to sway the result of this election. They needed to go bigger. They needed to make thousands of voters sick they needed to find a way to get a toxin into the water supply for the largest city in the county called the Dahls. And famously, this is where the beavers come into the equation. (laughs) (laughs) So according to one of Sheila's poison squad bioterrorists, the group made a plan to put a bunch of dead beavers in the water supply for the (laughs) Dahls, because apparently beavers are notoriously riddled with salmonella, and getting enough of the filthy little critters' rotting corpses into the drinking water could potentially make the entire city very unwell with a case of beaver fever. Oh. And when they tried to dump these beaver bodies in the water reservoir, the Rajneshi bioterrorists found that, oh, no, there's a mesh covering protecting <gasps> the water supply from <laughs> these kinds of beaver attacks. And so they had the idea of taking the beavers back to Rajneeshpura, liquefying them in a blender to then make a beaver slurry that they could easily pour into the dam through that mesh grate. Now, thankfully, that was a line that even Sheila didn't feel ready to cross. (laughs) So the whole poisoning scheme ended up just being abandoned and a few days before the election, Sheila announced the Rajneeshis were now just pulling out of the race and they were going to boycott the election altogether because they thought it was just so outrageous the way that those poor homeless people had been treated by the government because they'd been refused to vote And she said that they'd never even been serious about the election anyway. It had all just been a joke. And if people didn't understand her (laughs) sense of humour, then that was on them. She went home with her tail between her legs, but trying to maintain this air of dignity for herself. The plan to win the election was a bust. And then Sheila decided if she couldn't get power for themselves, their next best option was to get the people who were in power, and by get them, I mean murder them. Oh, She and her team started making plans to kill the state's attorney, the attorney general, the county commissioner, and a few other people who were in positions of power, basically anyone who was standing in the way of the Rajneeshis. And she made all of her closest allies totally paranoid that they were under serious threat and that someone was going to try to kill Bhagwan if they didn't kill someone else first. She secretly recorded Bhagwan saying that he believed the life of an enlightened man, i.e. his life, Mm -hmm. was far more valuable than 10,000 non enlightened people and that sometimes murder was necessary in order to protect someone whose life is exceptionally valuable like his. She used that as a very effective way of convincing her crew to arm up and get ready to kill. What followed then was a series of ridiculous misadventures that included a touch of light arson here or there as they failed and failed to successfully poison or shoot these bureaucrats, like just government <laughs> officials that they thought of as their mortal enemies. But it wasn't just by this stage the people outside the cult that Sheila wanted her crew to target. She also believed that there were enemies within the Rajneeshis. There was this group of very wealthy new Sannyasin recruits who'd recently moved to Rajnishpuram from Hollywood, including the producer of The Godfather and his former wife, they'd moved there together and they'd brought a lot of cash with them, which bought them special privileges and very close access to Bhagwan. And one of them was even given the very privileged position of being Bhagwan's personal physician. And Sheila felt possibly rightly that these people were becoming a threat to her power. So she told her murder crew that the Hollywood folks were planning to kill Bhagwan mm. with an overdose, make it look like a suicide, so then they could seize control of the global Rajneesh movement, which allegedly was a network of half a million people mm. around the world at this stage. This is late 1984. And Sheila gave the order that it was absolutely necessary the Bhagwan's doctor be eliminated as soon as possible. And one of her most devoted followers, an Australian woman from Perth named Jane, volunteered to be the assassin. And at a special festival celebration ceremony, she stabbed that doctor with a syringe full of adrenaline, which was intended to give him a heart attack and hopefully would then just look like an accident. The doctor survived and no official accusations were made against anybody but it was obvious who was behind the assassination attempt and Sheila was wise enough to know that it was time for her to pack up and go. So she chartered a jet and she and her closest cronies flew off to go hide out in Germany for a while and when he found out that Sheila was gone, Bhagwan was absolutely furious He'd just started speaking publicly again he earlier speak. that <laughs> year.
0: Mm. Just raise his eyebrows.
1: <laughs> He'd been doing his daily lectures again where he would just spontaneously talk about whatever he wanted to go on an old man rant about. He now started using those daily lectures to make wild accusations against mm. Sheila and her cohorts, mm. some of which were true some of which were entirely made up. Like he claimed that she'd stolen $55 million. He claimed she'd tried to have him killed. He said whatever he thought he needed to say to turn Rajneeshi's all around the world against Sheila and her crew, which worked. She was excommunicated and she was shunned. But the side effect of those announcements was that they acted as like an invitation to the FBI as well as to the state and county and city authorities to come on in and mm-hmm. search every center of Rajneesh Puram to find evidence to support these very serious claims that Bhagwan was making. And they found all kinds of fascinating <laughs> stuff while they were exploring, like... The lab where the salmonella oh. had been cultivated and records of hundreds of sham marriages that had been arranged to help Rajneeshies get American green cards. Yeah. They also found that Sheila and her gang had wired most of the city with bugs recording mm-hmm. devices so they could secretly spy on everyone 24-7, including Bug One, mm-hmm which meant that the FBI got their hands on a lot of recorded evidence that Bhagwan knew a lot more about what the Sanyasins had been doing over the previous few years than he had claimed to know because he said he was totally in the dark and Sheila was the evil one who'd been doing these terrible things. He had, in fact, been the one who was calling the shots. And they also found these recordings of Bhagwan praising Adolf Hitler as his personal hero. So Bhagwan suddenly felt the very urgent need to take a holiday <laughs> and he had his new team, mostly people from the Hollywood crew, arrange a private jet for him in secret so he could pop off to the Bahamas oh, nice. for a little while and just let the police <laughs> do their work in peace. And he packed as much valuable stuff as he possibly could, all his diamond Rolexes, artworks, fancy pen collection, His custom made throne, of course, he needed to take that with him on the road, just millions of dollars worth of stuff and flew off this little vacation, which definitely wasn't him fleeing the country. His jet was intercepted in North Carolina and he was arrested and taken back to Oregon to be tried on about 20 different charges To which he pled guilty. Oh. But only the type of guilty where it meant he was acknowledging that the government had sufficient evidence to convict him while at the same time still maintaining his innocence, if that makes sense. It's very weird, very weird. His sentence could have been a very long time in prison, but everyone who was connected to the prosecution could see he would just end up being a martyr if they went down that path. And that the best case scenario for them would be to just give him a really big fine, deport him from the country and make it really difficult for him to ever come back to the United States and hope that that would mean that all of his followers would then just piss off too and Rajneesh Puram would be evacuated effectively. And that is precisely what
0: happened. Oh, so nobody rushed in to fill the gap?
1: mm No. He was still the leader of the Rajneeshis. They were still completely devoted to him. He ended up back in India, but that was after about a year bouncing around the planet trying to find a new location Mm. for the commune, but he was turned away by pretty much every country he tried it out in. So he just decided, okay, the easiest option for us is probably just going to be to go back to the old ashram in Pune where he ended up rebranding himself as... Osho, just one name, because he thought the Bhagwan Rajneesh had some negative (laughs) connotations. Um, And I guess he decided to go with just the one name because Cher was very popular by that time. This was right around turn back time era. Um, Meanwhile, Sheila was extradited from Germany Mm -hmm. to the States and for her crimes, she was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Some of her allies got similar sentences. And the Rajneeshis, without a leader, dispersed. Um, over the course of the next few months, just in time for winter, this incredible city of Rajneeshpuram that had been you know, mm. built from scratch mm. was abandoned. Some of the most devoted sannyasins moved back to India so they could be close to Bhagwan, mm. but then a lot of others moved back to reality. And then Osho died in 1990 and he still has a huge following. But around the time he died, Sheila was released. Mm-hmm. She only spent a couple of years in prison. Once she was released, she moved to Switzerland to run a couple of nursing homes. Oh, <laughs> And she's still doing that to this day. And she's still talking to the media every now and then. And she stands by and defends all of her choices. She defends Bhagwan, even though he denounced her so viciously. She still loves him. She still feels strongly that he deserved his 93 Rolls Royces Mm. that he did have And he deserved to have the world's biggest collection of Rolexes. She felt that he was such a special person. He was entitled to have whatever he wanted. She kind of got her own cult following after Wild Wild Country came out. She was this real standout fan favourite. And she ended up having a few follow-up documentaries made about her and what she was doing Mm. with her life. A couple of years ago, she did a speaking engagement tour all across India Mm -hmm. about her redemption um, in which she just refuses to answer questions about her crimes apart from just saying, I went to prison, I did my sentence peacefully and I've moved on with my Mm -hmm. life. I don't need to discuss it any further. But continuing to espouse how much she adores Bhagwan still to this day. And Osho's books and his lectures, and there are hundreds of them, are still available for sale in almost every country all around the world. Mm-hmm. And Osho meditation centers, they're still up and running all over the place as well. You can go and do dynamic meditation mm-hmm. workshops. They also run these different corporate retreats for really big organizations as well. So look into that if you're interested and you work in HR. Um, And yeah, Hundreds of thousands of neo-sannyasins all around the world to this day. So, yes, no one stepped in to fill the void. They're still treating Osho as their leader. And no surprises, the Osho International Foundation is worth hundreds of millions oh, of really? dollars in revenue every year.
0: So who controls it's a that?
1: huge company. I'm pretty sure it's run by a board, but there's no main figurehead.
0: Did he have any children?
1: No, no. Hmm. So all of that happened because of this one naturally charismatic kid who just didn't want to follow the rules throughout his life just kept pushing boundaries to the point that then this cult was formed, this city was built, and this war was waged in the United States. And the final thing, I'll stay to wrap this up just because it's such a delicious twist of fate. The Big Muddy Ranch... That was then Rajneesh Puram, that was then abandoned, ended up being donated to another kind of cult, a Christian youth camp, <laughs> where children are brought every summer and preached to about the benefits of abstinence <laughs> and carnal forbearance and waiting till that's marriage.
0: Perfect. Oh, that's perfect.
1: And that is just the gist of Bhagwan Rajneesh and the Rajneeshies and their attempt to take over America.
0: Oh, thank you. You've uh, filled a big gap in my knowledge, I tell you. (laughs) I had no idea about that level of ruthlessness.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, they were very, very, very determined because they believed that they were in the right in all circumstances. And I cannot wait to get together with you-know-who to ask him some questions about this stuff because I have not had the opportunity and at some point I really want to. And now you'll know enough to be able to ask questions alongside me. Now, if you want to get to know more, Mama, obviously watch the documentary series Wild Wild Country on Netflix. Mm -hmm. If you've already seen it, re-watch it. I hadn't seen it for four years almost exactly and there was so much that I had forgotten and there's so much that obviously I wasn't able to include in this episode of Just the Gist. There's then the follow-up documentary on Netflix called Searching for Sheila that follows her around on her speaking tour of India. There's also a really, really excellent book that just came out in March of this year called Rajneesh Puram by a guy called Russell King, who's an expert in everything to do with everything that happened with the Rajneeshis. He also has a podcast series called Building Utopia, which is about 16 hours worth of listening, but all of it's absolutely fascinating. Highly recommend that. And then there are a couple of articles as well that I'll include in the show notes that you can have a read over. For example, accounts of people who work for The Guardian, for example, who recently went to do a dynamic meditation retreat Mm -hmm. and you know, recounting the positives of the experience that she'd had there. Also a couple of articles about people who were children that grew up in Rajneesh uh, and yeah. how it impacted their lives yeah. ongoing because they had a really, really shoddy education that did not set them up for success. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the psychological toll of what they experienced yeah, was pretty awful. extreme. Yeah. yeah. Um, And I didn't have time to cover any of that. So, yeah, there's plenty more that you can dive into if you would like to. Mama, thank you so much for being here for this. My pleasure. It has been a treat. How did you find it? Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And I've survived. (laughs) Were you as terrified as you expected to be?
0: Yes. Okay.
1: (laughs) Well, you white-knuckled your way through it and you did a fantastic job. Thank you so much. I love you very, very much. Cheers and goodbye to all of you.
0: Goodbye. Listener.